I had an oil there, good buddy, Joe Falcon Patterson, down here at Ponderosa, 161 Essex, holding down the board. And today I am with. Uh, this is Jonathan Shaw in the house. Jonathan Shaw's in the house, and. And Matthew Bishop. Matthew Bishop from Brazil, and. Weston Priest. Weston Priest, who uh, just got a Jonathan Shaw tattoo uh, yesterday. As, wow, that's. Uh, as fate would have it. As fate would have it. And um, actually, he used to talk about you through Big Big Steve. He talked about going to Big Steve before. And ah. Weston did my radio for quite a while with the 8 Ball Radio. Nice. So he's been, you know, interested in tattoos. I hate the word fan, so I'm not going to use the word fan. But he's an aficionado. Aficionado. Uh, yeah, interested in the subject. So, God, where do we go? We go back to Blitzfear. You remember Blitzfear? I do. That's the first time I met you. Yeah, that was That's in the base. That, 1982 that, that, or something like that? It was pretty early. That's, uh, you were tattooing, and I think it was Phil or his drummer? Yeah, I was, bedroom. I was living in Brazil, and then I started coming back to the States, and I was tattooing out of Los Angeles. Yeah. And then I met these guys who were in this band, and they were like, you should come to New York. We got a lot of skin for you, you know, people want to get tattooed, it's illegal there. I was like, oh shit, so I, you know, so I came up here at their bequest and holed up in some crappy apartment in the... Yeah, it was about 11th Street, 10th Street, yeah, you know, building. And just sat in some bedroom and set up my shop there yeah. and tattooed all these fucking guys and that was, uh, then you showed up one day with yeah, a camera. that's right. And I was like, okay. Uh, and actually, you hit it at a really good time. That was a resurgence of the rock and roll. There had been yes. an earlier rock and roll thing where you had like English Craig and all them here with full sleeve. I wound up English living with, with English Craig. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, later... Yeah, he's a very interesting guy. Yeah. But he was over here first. I think was with the, there was another guy he was with called Smuggy... Smuddy. Smuddy, Smuddy. Smith from the, from the Rock Cats. Yeah, and he was totally asleep. Yeah. They had that British look. Yes. They, 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 they had an apartment above Nightbirds on 2nd Avenue. Yeah. And I moved in with them at a different time, and I was tattooing out of there. And you know, this was all before I opened Because they City. brought the British look. With rock and roll. Yeah, rockabilly. Because here, the rockabilly look. That's they right. They were kind of the like hair. the Stray Cats. They, they were kind of like an offshoot of the Stray Cats. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And that look. Yeah, that whole, that whole aesthetic. The hair, yeah. the shoes. Yeah, yeah the yeah, whole the rockabilly, rockabilly yeah. thing. Yeah. yeah. That was early, early rockabilly, yeah. And then that became like a bunch of bands that were, came around that scene. And you would just hit that scene. By this time, I guess it's kind of mid-80s rock and roll, uh, yep. Pyramid Club, CBGBs. That's MTV when you had a was happening. Up. MTV is starting to happen. Yep. A Gats getting out there. She's starting to do custom leather, a Gats custom leather. Yes. You have um, uh, Gary Sunshine and the Circus yeah, of Power. Yeah, Circus of Power. Mixing in. They were before Guns N' Roses. I don't know if they were before. Well, I yeah, think I they think probably so. were. Yeah, they probably were. And I think were. they went to L.A. And what happened, that that's that when you learn the trick of... What they could do is the record company, they give, I think, something like sixty or $90,000 to make like a, a, a video and everything. So it, it cost exactly the amount of money they And they, they spent it all on like cocaine. But, and we the, call, we and the video, call that the video. circus of powder. Right. And so what, ha what happened is they got shelved and, and, and they just got put on the shelf. And then Guns N' Roses came up. The same look, the same style, yeah, the same yeah, tattoos, yeah, yeah. the motorcycles, the whole thing. And then it became Guns N' Roses. Right. That was an interesting life experience. But yeah, you hit it, and then this was the time the psychedelic solution starts kicking into gear. Yes. Harry McCormick at the door, English Craig at the and door. And I did the first ever fucking tattoo show 
at the psychedelic solution gallery. That was now, that was further, that was way further. That was like in 88, 89. Yeah, it, it could be in 89. Yeah, it might have been 89. And then right. I, was, I have these huge archives of anti-tattoo Flash designs uh, been collected. Uh, okay, let's get down to the real story here. You have, you still have one of those pieces that's mine, the dragon thing. Anyway, <laughs> well, maybe two of them, which I never got back. It was I, in the show. I know you're an innocent, you forget, but I that's okay. I don't There's a picture. Send me a picture. Send me a picture. Right. If I find it, I'll send it back to you. Of course you will. <laughs> I don't remember. Uh, uh, I'm sure take the fifth on that. But, but that uh, was a huge fucking thing because yes. I was working at, with Philip Blue at Fun City Tattoo That's right. Underground Philip around That's the corner right. here on First, First Street. First. And and I got up with Carlo, maybe through you, maybe through Joe. I don't know. But then he well, said, did you Let's, meet Joe there? No, I know Joe from L.A. Oh, L.A. Yeah. did his, Joe Coleman did his first show in Los Angeles at uh, La Luz de Jesus Gallery, which was right. owned by my friend Billy Shire. Who's kind of the twin of, of, uh, of uh, Psychedelic Solution here, well, Richie Cambridge. Yeah, yeah. sort of. Similar, well, similar at the piece. time, they were like polars. Yeah. And, you know, but Billy had a whole other history. But anyway, so I went to, the, I was friends with them, and I was doing stuff with him, and Joe came out and did his first show in Los Angeles, and, I, and we became instant friends. And I said to him, "Hey, I'm moving to Los. I'm moving to New York, because that's where the you know tattoo business is sort of beckoning me." And he said, "Well, when you get to New York, let's hook up." And a few months later, I moved to New York, and I moved into the back of this uh, this uh, clothing shop. Yeah. Uh, first and first, it was called the Crypt. The Crypt. And yes. it was a couple of junkie gals that had. You know, this gothic sort of aesthetic. Was it Gloria and somebody no, else? No, it was Grace Martini Grace. And, yes, yes. Uh, and Rebecca Dannenberg, who went on to become kind of a semi-famous fashion designer, and Grace Martini. And they were, you know, these sort of goth chicks that they had yeah. this unsuccessful little clothing shop with like skeletons in the window. And, right. You know. But they were part of that cool underground rock yeah, and roll. Yeah, they were definitely Mud rock honey. and rollers. And I moved into their the back of their shop and yep. paid them rent for a while until I realized one day that I was making all kinds of money tattooing people and people were like climbing in the windows to get tattooed and these people were making no money so one day I just was like hey you know I'll give you a couple thousand bucks to move out and they took the money and ran so I took over that space and turned it into Fun City Tattoo. Now that's when you first started collecting Robert Williams. Uh, I was uh, collecting Robert Williams paintings, Joe, Joe Coleman, Coleman paintings. I was collecting all kinds of crazy shit. Yeah, Crumb you was, were. Yeah, Crumb. You were doing a lot of the psychedelic solution. The Crumb. Zap people. Crumb eventually did the cover to my book Scavenger when it came out twenty years, right. thirty years later. That's right. But that's right. yeah, so I mean, that was a time to be in New York. I mean, Carla McCormick. I mean, you. I mean, all these yeah, people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. absolutely. Bonji was out Bonji and about. Bonji was out and about. Yeah, Spiderweb you know, was happening. Ratso, Corbin, all yeah. Jim Jarmusch, you know, Jim Jarmusch, was living over here, you know, we yeah. became like this sort of, you know, Kimbra, we became this sort of, yeah, like Leslie and Adam, Diane Hansen. I hear that they died or something. Yeah, they died, sadly, it went kind of quick, I mean, they got some sort of neurological thing or something, and, yeah, this city will just kill you. Well, I, th I think you're right. I think it'll grind you down in a minute. If you're not careful, it can fucking yeah. grind you down. We both I think my saving grace is when I was fully involved in the culture here, I was also 
had roots all over the world, so I was able to get on a plane yes. and go to Brazil and chill out for you know a couple months, and I come back here. Right. So I never stayed put. You know, even in the summer, I had a motorcycle. I'd grab some chicken, right. ride upstate for you know a few days, and just you know sort of detox my soul from being in the trenches here all the time. So I was, well, you know, I mean, when you get in the trenches here, you get in the trenches. The trenches are long and they're deep, as you they're know. They're dirty. And they're fucking dirty. And, and they're dangerous. Uh, you know, violent and dangerous. stressful. Yeah, yeah, it can be violent and stressful. And they're hard to get out of once you're in them, you know. They lock you in. There's well, that was my saving grace. I always took breathing. You always had a way out. I always took, you know. Took I mean, a there's a lot of ways that it happens. Homelessness, uh, court cases, drugs. people get sick, drugs, of oh, course. hell yeah. Drugs, parties. Alcohol, parties. Sex, drugs, rock yeah, and roll. Yeah, sex, all drugs, rock, all that. Yeah. yeah. And it so I people up. I was lucky. <laughs> yeah, you've always managed to escape. And, um, but yeah, definitely high points. I mean, the psychedelic solution was certainly a high point. That was a big deal. I mean, when we, it when, really when Jacaber gave me the uh, green light to, do a tattoo exhibition there. Yeah. And tattooing was totally like 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 underground, if even that, in New York City. Everybody was wanted a tattoo. There was no right. legitimate tattooing. It either. was in vogue. Joe Kaplan. But there was no tattooing. Well, yeah, there's a lot of names. But you know, the bottom line is let me yeah, tell you. It, <laughs> it was pretty quiet. There was no tattooing mm. in New York. Educate, and I was doing the underground thing down right. here, and I, you know, I was booked. You know, I mean, the, the supply versus the demand was insane. Like I'd get a hundred calls a day, and I could only tattoo five people, if that. Especially the kind of work I was doing, custom work. I wanted to, you know, pay attention to each piece. Well, so you I put a lot of flyers in that run. I mean, let's let's be. I mean, there were there's certain web was uptown. Spider web was on seventeenth. I was working with him for like a year before I said, okay, I'm going to go do my own thing. And then I moved to the back of the crypt and started Fun City. What years did you work with Spider? Oh, God, late 80s at some point. That was in Mount Vernon, though, right? No. No? Spider had a loft up in the 30s on 6th Avenue. Is that with Annie Sprinkle? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you were part and of that? I managed so. that place. Did you? I ran Spider's shop before I came downtown. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? I mean, Spider well, was Spider trying. was just glad to have somebody that knew how to tattoo to come and fill in for him because he was burned out. So he'd, yeah, he'd, he'd be like, I'm gone fishing. Here's the keys, Johnny. Tell them you're me if they, if they ask. And so people would call and I would imitate Spider Webb and I'd be like, hey, how much money you got? Hey, come on over. Yeah. And I'd tattoo these people and they all thought I was fucking Spider Webb. Of course. You know, I was a young kid, man. Yeah. I mean, you know, and I'm suddenly, I'm like, you know, up to my fucking eyeballs and people want, fancy people want to spend like a thousand bucks for a fucking little tattoo. And I was like, come on, bring them. Yeah. What year would this be about? Was this after uh, Phil? I can't remember. No, I don't remember that either. Because Spider was always a trip. you got to tell some Spider stories. I mean, well, you have to have some whatever those. became a Spider? Uh, he's down like in South Carolina. He's doing great. You know, the health problems and whatever. God he's got totally him. white hair now. He looks like, uh, what's his name, the guy that he tattooed? Oh, man. Oh, yeah. Walter Bachman? <laughs> no, Walter Bachman. That's another one. Uh, no, um, what's his name? The albino guy. Oh, Johnny Winters. Johnny Winters. Who passed away. God bless him. Yeah. Yeah, well, Spider was, you know, so I worked with Spider, and I can't remember when. I came up from Brazil 
at some point. This was probably early 80s. Yeah, this was before Phil. This yes. had to be before Phil. It was, it was. This was yeah. early 80s. This would have been like 1982. I was living in Brazil. Was, was it the apartment or was it, was it, was it, uh, was it was a loft. there? No, it was a loft he had up on 6th Avenue above a Spanish restaurant. There was on the ground floor, there was a Spanish restaurant yeah. on the next floor. There was some kind of well, t-shirt factory. The next floor, there was a whorehouse and the top floor was Spider's studio. By appointment only and uh, yeah I showed up from Brazil one night with a recommendation from a tattooer in Brazil an Italian guy named Marco who knew Spider and he said yeah tell him you're my friend go to New York you see Spider. He had the pyramid tattoo on his forehead. Yes he had right. something tattooed on his forehead right. to keep out of the army uh, in Italy yeah. and I went to see Spider and he said uh, oh yeah come on in yeah a friend of Marco's come on and we sat down at this big desk that he had that was just full of like paraphernalia and hashish and liquor bottles and stuff. And we sat down and we got drunk and snorted cocaine and just talked all night. And uh, and he said, you're hired, you know. And then <laughs> like two days later, he handed me the keys and he said, I'm going fishing. Uh, you hold down the shop. And I, that's, uh, I was there and I tattooed all his customers and you know, and did that. I, I did that for like a year. Really? Yeah. I've never then, talked about that before. No, I, I tattooed for Spider for like a year. Because, you know, eventually Spider's a much bigger deal than people give him credit for, Spider's too. Spider's a huge deal. Spider's a huge deal. He wrote that book. 1979, Pushing Ink. That book was huge. That was like the only book yeah, the only in real print book. Yes. that had anything to do with tattooing. And yes. he became like the godfather. Everybody hated him. Yeah, like all the legitimate <laughs> tattoo artists, you know, so-called legitimate. Well, people. also he was such a prima donna, you know, he had to have all the press. Well, he was a self-promoting oh, you know, monster. He was a machine. Absolutely. So I mean, he taught me a lot. I learned yeah. a lot just by proxy from Spider. You know, actually, it makes a lot of sense now. And you've never talked about this uh, Spider Web thing. Oh, it's a you know, like I wrote kind of like an outline for my all my books, the Scavenger series that you know I've, I've written the first two books and published them. But there's like five more books coming behind that, and you know I don't know if I even live long enough to finish writing all these books. But this the the outline for all these books started with a movie script, uh, a screenplay that Johnny Depp had uh, sort of commissioned uh, casually back. Oh God, around the turn of the you know turn of the millennium. Commissioned you? Yeah, he told me why don't you write a why don't why. Because I told him, I'm writing these books, you know, I'm writing these memoir books. And he was like, oh, it's going to take forever. Why don't you write a movie script and we'll make a movie of your life? And it's Johnny Depp. So I was like, sure, I'll do that. So I sat with, you know, with this other guy. And we came Pirates of the Caribbean. No. So, so I, <laughs> that's a whole other story. But I, I wrote this movie script that basically was, you know, the story of my life up until that point when I wrote it, 2000. Oh. And uh, in the movie script, there's a lot about my time in New York, my early years in New York with Spider Web, and then opening Fun City. It's you know kind of like the whole, the whole yeah because thing. because Spider, uh, you know, if you look at that book, uh, Pushing Ink, it was called. He did like conceptual tattoos in there. Nobody did those up until 2000. Yeah, he did like uh, uh, brushstroke tattoos. No, he was like the Andy Warhol of yeah. tattoos. He'd, he'd call up time, uh, time, and say, because he used to be able to call time out in New York, and he would say, "Okay, hello, what time is it? Uh, one twenty. Right. So he would put one ten ten on somebody's arm. Yeah. 
I mean, shit like that, which people are only getting to now. Yeah. Stories on different people. He did all that shit in the 70s. Oh, he was a visionary. He had Marsha Tucker wrote the introduction to his book, Heavily Tattooed Men and Women, in 1976. Marsha Tucker went on and eventually created the New Museum. I mean, he is light years ahead of himself. And that's why it's very interesting now that you talk about working with Spider-Web. Because Spider-Web was... A Navy guy, so on one hand he's very conservative. Well, he came from a traditional tattoo background like everybody did back then. Yeah, Irish, drinking, and uh, Coney Island. Joe uh, Sullivan. This is real. That's right, that's right. Joe that's Sullivan. Joe Sullivan. Irish drunk. fucking drunk, man. Yeah. <laughs> so did, um, did Pushing Ink predate your magazine? Oh, hell yeah. Oh, yeah, oh by, by like decades. Even, even Ed, Hardy, Ed Hardy's Ed Hardy's came out in 83. Hardy, Hardy's came out in 83, Spiders probably came out in like 80. Well, 79 was pushing My in, but the other one came out until the early 90s. Early 90s, So yeah. he predated me by Yeah, no, Spiders, Spiders, you, you see, Hardy is without question important, you know, wouldn't oh, diminish his yeah. story at all. But there is other alternative histories to tattooing that has not been told. Right. And part of it's ego, because, you know, Ed's also a tattoo artist and whatever. Yeah, he's got his own little cult. The dog. And Spiderweb was an asshole. <laughs> I mean, he would prance around like a gay guy. He would act gay half the time. I mean, he was always into like like sex and well, he got more pussy than that. anybody. Than anybody, yeah. yeah. And he had a, a crutch band. I mean, he was just he was awesome. A, he was a rock star, man. and he was a rock star. He was a rock star. And he would go around with his cape with a big swastika on the back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was a trip. Man. I mean, he was a trip. So people also hated him for that. Because this is the time of machismo and he was flamboyant as fuck, man. Oh, he was. And he was down with Andy Sprinkle. They used to oh, go to the Hellfire Club yeah, and get pissed raise on. hell and yeah. you know, just like crazy times, man. And you know, Andy and them, and see, so there's these different streams in tattooing that have never been brought out. There was a gay stream. There was like a, a sex oh Charles stream. Gatewood. Yeah, Gatewood, all that. And there was like the uh, the military and the macho, and I mean there was all these different brackets yeah, all the time. Yeah, and was... it's never really been talked about. It's always talked about Sailor Jerry, blah blah, you know. And it's like it's cool and everything, but it's but it's different, really. The reality is different. Hell yeah! And that's why it's uh, yeah, it's exciting to hear about you working with Spider Web. You didn't know that. No, that's amazing. I, I thought you knew more about me than I know about me. That's, <laughs> well, that's I, Spider I mean, Web was remember, before that was pre Clayton too. Yeah, that was, that was pre everything. That was pre everything. That's right. That was my first tattoo experience in New York. I came up from Brazil yeah. like a wetback. You know, basically, I I couldn't even hardly speak English. I mean, I I was I've lived in Brazil. You know, my whole adult life. You know, and. and I came up here, and this is where I was born, you know, and I just fell into this weird kind of whirlpool and just got swept away, and I was with Spider. God, no, that, I don't remember when the thing, no, the thing with, I don't remember when. Spider had to be before Phil, he had to. It was, it sure, was, it sure was. But no, it yes. wasn't, it, it wasn't. Yes, it, it had to be. I can't fucking remember. No, the Spider-Web, I mean, you've never really talked about the Spider-Web period before, spider really. Web. It's been mentioned, you know, Shotzi Gorman was up I was tattooed in New Orleans. Oh, yeah, I've been in Brazil. I came up from Brazil. I was tattooed in New Orleans. That's all in my screenplay. i got to look at that thing and try to figure out the timeline. Yeah, I was tattooed yeah. in New Orleans, and these guys from a band came. They, these guys from a rock band came. That was the, uh, the Fuzz Tones. They were on tour, oh, really? and they were doing a U.S. tour, and they showed up at this tattoo shop where I was working in fucking New Orleans, 
and they showed up and we hit it off and I did a bunch of tattoos on them and then I jumped in the van with them and they brought me to fucking New York and I was, and that's when I met Spiderweb. I was, I'm in New York. Let me go see this legendary guy who was friends with people I knew in Brazil. And I went up to see him and he gave me a job and boom, I started tattooing in his place. From his place I moved back to Brazil. I came back, maybe that's what was I did. Uh, Bob Roberts, that's when you came back and went to Phil's. Was Bob maybe. Roberts around when you... Um, no, Bob Roberts had already left. Bob he Roberts had already left. left. It was like 19. Well, Bob Roberts left New York and that was, yeah. that was a few years before I came to New York. Okay, yeah, so that was that was early, yeah, so... Bob Roberts, I, I first met Bob Roberts in ni uh, 1982, and he was already... He well, you got a tattoo by him, by him, right? Yeah, I got some big tattoos by him. Actually, the, one, the other thing about Jonathan is, is that, uh, and this is early on, and even though Hardy doesn't mention him that much or whatever, I think he's got, I think he got the largest black and gray uh, tattoo oh. Hardy ever did. Yeah, probably. Yeah, it's a dragon. Well, I was friends with Ed Hardy until Philip Lou came to work. Is that what happened? And uh, yeah, he didn't really pump you up up that much. No, was... no, Ed Hardy ended up hating me. Uh, yeah, but you know that's Ed Hardy. I mean, but Hardy and, and, and so because all the tattoos, I mean, you have Greg Irons, all the Johnson's tattoos. Oh, Johnson's got really great tattoos, and this is early. We're talking seventies and eighties, and to have the quality of tattoos that he has. Like his black tattoo, like I'm sure that's the largest uh, Ed Hardy black and gray. It's probably the only large black and gray he's ever probably, done. Probably, yeah. It's probably one of the only black and grays he's ever done. Probably. Well, right? that was when he was hot. I mean, Ed was really. Well, that's when you know guy. Rudy and all those guys, uh, yeah. Ernie and Grady, all that was coming into it. But Hardy never really got into talking about that, and that's no. why you, your dragon on your back is most unusual, and it's also readable. Some of those dragons are so hard to read. Yours is really readable. Yeah, well, you know, Ed Hardy was the Don, you know, so... Yeah, uh, no, you got it. Who else did you get? You got Greg Irons, oh, like I got Bob Roberts. Everybody, you know, everybody back in the day. I mean, I was a young guy, and I was yeah, yeah, yeah. collecting, you know, my body Colonel Todd? Uh, I don't think I ever got a tattoo by Colonel Todd, even though he was one of my mentors. I got tattoos yeah. by Bob Shaw. Oh, did you get Bob Shaw? my mentors, you know. Yeah, I got tattooed by Bob in 1982. Okay. Uh, yeah, that was all before I came to New York. I came to New York yeah. probably 1984. Who was the one that did the shadow, the little landscape on your side? Greg Irons. That was Greg Irons. Because yeah. you also have the waves too, right? Yeah. Yeah, he yeah. was really famous for the waves. Yeah, Greg Irons was a legendary San Francisco underground, underground cartoonist. You know, yeah. yeah. So I, I, I had the honor of meeting all these amazing Yeah, people. you really did. I mean, I had worked with all these amazing Legendary people. You know? I mean, you had a very diverse life. I mean, your mother was a movie star. What was your mother's name? Doris Dowling. Yeah. She was in the uh, the Lost Weekend. Yeah. The Billy Wilder movie. And yeah, you know, it's it is. Father really, Artie Shaw. Yeah, he was a big deal too. I mean, he's been always been a big deal his whole life, right? Have you ever read my books? Yeah. Yeah, it's all in there. Well, we're, that's why we're talking about it. That's why we're talking about it. <laughs> There's not much to talk about. It's all been written, you know. Well, this yes. guy I know has read my books. I, I read, I've read the first Scavenger. I haven't read Homeward Bound. Well, that's um, just. But I certainly know a lot about the the family. Hey, the family. Yeah, because that was all about you know the family. But the reason yeah. I bring up that though is because. What we're talking about here is complete options. This is what I was talking about before with the Tattoo Society. We would get like the people from serious high end, 
you know, like Daphne Hellman, grandfather started a, a bank on Wall Street, uh, David Hayes, mother Mary Sisler, and then you'd have like bikers and, you know, the other end of the spectrum at a certain level, and there wasn't really a middle. And so for a guy like Jonathan, the reason I bring up his mother and father and all of that is we're talking New York City and Upper East Side. And so we're kind of comparing juvenile delinquentsville, Spofford and these places, and a kid from the Upper East Side. But I wasn't. What do you mean you weren't? I've never been in the Upper East Side of my life. I didn't grow up on the Upper East Side. Oh, you weren't? Where did you grow up? I grew up in California. No, no, but you lived in the U.S. From New York. I was born in New York. Yeah. You gotta read my book. I gotta read it again. No, you gotta read but, it. But uh, I have read the book. But it's, um, so how old were you when you went to California? 12 or something, right? No, I was one. I was you a baby. One. Oh. I didn't come back to New York until I was like 13. And that was not anything to do with my mother and father. I had this crazy Bohemian uncle who lived on the Upper West Side in a, in a tenement slum, uh, associate of. Uh, you know, Kerouac and those guys, he was a beatnik and he was a terrible drunk and he had three kids and it was just mayhem and I, uh, my mother's, you know, was kind of fed up with my antics, sent me to live with my crazy beatnik uncle for the summer and that was my first real contact with New York. I must have been 12 or 13. Yeah, we got into all kinds of trouble here. But, you know, like I say, that, that family So what history, years would this be? Would this be like the pot years, the LSD this years? This would have been, uh, you know, whatever. I was born in 53, so I was 12, it would be 64, 65. 60, okay, so this is the Beatles, Rolling Stones. Early 60s, yeah. Early 60s, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, Still summer in love. This is pre the whole Vietnam, 68, 69 thing. Yeah, those are fun years. They were, they were fun years. And then in New York, I mean, New York is very underground. You were always able to make the big splash here. I mean, certainly that tribal tattoo that you did, that pop art twist was really a first in tattooing. And that, that direction that you gave that tribal, that pop art twist, was probably one of the biggest influences in tattooing, even to this day. I mean, you have black and gray, you have certain things. And it's harder now to make a big flip that changes the whole system. You know, I mean, that's not so easy nowadays. Yeah. But that pop twist that you gave it at that time was really a major spinning around of the whole time. It was, it was. Yeah, I mean, it was. was a big fucking deal. I it was, was a, a big I deal. I was a, what do you call it? I Pioneer. was a uh, trailblazer trail and fucking tattooing. And, you know, now it's like if I walk into any tattoo shop in the world, you know, some fucking 20-year-old kid with a nose ring will come up to me and go like, hi, can I help you? Yeah. <laughs> Be like, what the fuck? Only in that world could such a thing exist, you know? I mean, if Chuck Berry walked into a fucking, you know, guitar store or something, people would be like falling down, you know, to kiss his fucking feet. Old tattoo artists, it's like, fuck you, you know, who cares? Well, it's, I mean, there really is this neglect for tattoo history. I mean, there really is no passion for it or something. There's neglect or there's. Sour I mean, it, 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 it's, it's either so much sort of glamour. I walked into Fuck City yesterday, the fucking shop that I built, and some fucking 20 year old kid uh, was running the front and he says to me, Can I help you? I was like, Yeah, you get the fuck out of my way. <laughs> <laughs> Big Daddy's home. <laughs> How long have it been since you've been back? I think I asked you this yesterday. I come here like once a year, yeah, you know, just step, stop in. I don't really tattoo there much. In terms of tattooing in the shop? I did a couple of tattoos there a couple of years ago on people that, you know, old 
friends or clients or whatever, but rarely, never. I think I want to start going there once a year and actually doing some appointments if, if there is such a thing. I mean, this is probably like, you know, I mean, a lot of these people, anybody that remembers me from tattooing, you know. Or well, how'd you hear about, about uh, Jonathan? I mean, I learned about him recently from Probably the Steve. show, but then I, I had a friend, Dylan, who introduced me to class. He did my like first few tattoos there, stick and pokes, and he told me to go see Steve if I wanted some you know real work done. And I did, and then kind of learned the history of the shop, and that sure. kind of coincided with you and I doing these shows a lot of times about kind of the New York City. So, okay, so let me just repeat that for a second. Okay, so you learned a lot about Jonathan Shaw by being on part of this show. So, Jonathan, what you got to do is listen to the goddamn program, and then we'll talk about the bloody books. Then I can learn a lot about me. That's right. Okay. Well, I mean, we've certainly been a lot of conversations about, you know, significant people in the under, or at least prior to the band being lifted as well, you know, throughout decades. Um, so I'd always heard your name yeah. mentioned, you know, a few times in each of these shows. Ended up meeting Steve, and I was wondering. I mean, now obviously it's kind of come full circle after getting the tattoo yesterday. Do you think I'm the youngest person with one of your tattoos? That I'm Do you think what, that you're what? With one of your tattoos. Wait a minute. Do you think I'm the youngest person with one of your tattoos? You That's the youngest right now. Question. I mean, come mm -hmm. to think of it, I'm 24. Probably, yeah. Probably you are. That's an interesting question. <laughs> that's I never even I never even yeah. occurred to me. But yeah, yeah you no, probably that's right. are. That is a very you interesting. You probably are. You know. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You probably are. Because I mean, you know, every time I've come out here to tattoo. Yeah, you mentioned people you know. I've tattooed people that knew me from back in the day, or yeah, even other tattoo artists. Tattoos. A lot of time it's tattoo artists. Like the people who even know or care who I am are a lot of them are you know tattoo artists with maybe more more than twenty years tattooing. And they'll be like, oh, I want to get a tattoo from, you know, you for my collection because of, you know, sentimental or historical motivations. So, yeah, you know, I don't tattoo a lot of, you know, people that know who I am uh, outside of the Well, the, the top tattoo, end is you know, getting really starting to get very thin. What's that? I see the period that you came up in. Uh -huh. There still is a top end of that. Well, people and, and that top off. end is starting to get very thin, yeah. yeah. I mean, by the time you get to this end, there's just thousands of tattoo artists. I wouldn't even know what there is in New York City. I have no Me idea. Either. No idea. Absolutely none. Me neither. And these days? Yeah. I mean, I think it's just impossible to tell too many it's people. It's weird. But I was walking down First Avenue today, actually, on my way over to Fun City, and I stopped in front of the gem spot to take a picture of it because they have that great awning now that yeah. says Shitty Bank. Right, right, right. And uh, so I stopped to take a picture of that, and these two guys with tattoos all up in their necks and stuff walked up to me, and they're like, are you Jonathan Shaw? And I was like, yeah, that's my name. And they were like, oh, man, you know, I tattoo ba -da -da, uptown, and the other guy tattoos downtown somewhere, and they were like, oh, can I get a picture with you? And I was like, oh, sure. That's <laughs> This is cool, you know. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I don't know. You know, that's unusual. I mean, I live at these conventions. I don't even know who's in them. I don't either. I don't. I don't. I don't live in the tattoo world at all. Yeah, it's funny. I'm not interested in it. Well, know? what was interesting to me about that period was there was so few people that like, there was had, a handful. Yeah, there so. was a handful of people tattooing in the city. We all knew who each other were. You know, we, we might have gotten along, some of us hated each other, but we didn't really cross paths. 
Yeah. Unless we wanted to, you know, like Mike Perfetto, I was friends with Mike Perfetto. Yeah. He's a great guy. We were pals, you know, I didn't threaten his business, he didn't threaten mine. We did totally different things. Right, right. And we got along. I always loved that guy, you know. Uh, you know, fine line, uh, Mike, yeah, Mike Katie, I didn't himself. really know him. He no. kept to himself, I kept to myself. Yeah, yeah, well, no, that's Spider. not true. I mean, you put up a lot of, a lot of ads around him. No, but as far as, I didn't. But Mike didn't, really. He didn't care. No. He, he had his thing. He, he had, had his thing. People. He was very underground. That's what it was. And yes. there was Davida. You know, I went and right. paid my around. respects to Davida. Yeah, and Davida was off his And there was Spider. And that was it. There was Big yeah. Joe way the fuck up there in Mount Vernon. Mount Vernon. And I was friendly Tony enough Polito, with him. Yeah, yeah. Champion the Bronx. Yeah, yeah, I was friendly with all those guys. Yeah, but, Staten you know, Coney on Freddy. So I never really stepped on anybody's toes. And they didn't, yeah. you know, there was no conflict. And there was that guy, Mike, uh, oh, what's his name? The, 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 the Egghead. Yeah, the Egghead. Yeah, he got all pissed off at me. <laughs> well, let's tell that story. So what happens is, um, well, I, Mike's going to go out of business. Well, wait, let me predate okay. this. Okay, predate it. Predate this. Okay, Mike pre-date. has been tattooing for like five minutes. Right. And he's kind of like, you know, this anthropologist guy, and he's, you know, scholarly egghead guy. And he's doing tattooing as kind of like slumming. I saw him as like slumming and doing sort of experiments to, you know, write some thesis about. And, you know, he had only set up a little tattoo shop there. And I was very nice to him. I was very friendly to him. I was, you know, I gave him some some of my experience, you know, the benefit of some of my experience as a real, you know, old school tattoo artist. I was, you know, I was friendly to the guy. And uh, one day he just folded up his shop that had been there for all the two minutes anyway, and left. And I was like, that son of a bitch, he could have given me his, uh, you know, he could have given me uh, a referral (laughs) referral to some of his many clients that he was just going to walk out on. Keep going. So I took it upon myself (laughs) to get his phone number. I called the... I called the phone company and I and I, I said, uh, "This is Mike McCabe. I, I want to transfer my phone number over to uh, 94 St. Mark's Place, which is where we had Fun City at the time." And so, so then we had two phone lines. We had the regular tattoo shop line, and we had the Mike McCabe line. And people would call up looking for a tattoo, and I, we'd be like, uh, "Oh yeah, you know, we moved." Hey, Mike, uh, it's for you. Yeah, come on over. So we started getting all his customers coming over. And he found out about that, and he got mighty pissed off. And he went, so how he manifested his uh, discontent was he yelled at my my 98-pound wife at the post office and scared the shit out of her, and, you know, made her cry. And really? she came home, and he was like, this guy threatened me at the post office. I was like, who was that? And I tried to track him down, and I was going to throw him a fucking beating. But I think he got wind of it and left town or something. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know, but anyway, that's the uh, that's the story. Sad but true. Yeah, that <laughs> was. Oh yeah, then he wound up becoming this tattoo scholar. He wrote a book about New York City tattoo history and made a point of that. Yeah, uh, I, 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 I out of it. Book. I, I noticed that. Yeah, there's curiously. a conspicuous <laughs> absence of you know a big chunk of New York City tattoo history there. But you know, I mean, that's sour. What you call sour grapes? I mean, there's enough sour grapes in the tattoo business to, you know, Spoil the wine. start a fucking French vineyard, you know, <laughs> it's like, yeah. But, you know, no, you did a lot of things first. I mean, the other thing I think that was really, I mean, you did a number of things that were really interesting, but the, uh, 
So taking a tribal uh, tattoo, just making it a heavy outline, yeah, and then filling it in with either graffiti or different colors or different styles, that was a whole different look. Well, that, that became I like a to. staple in the tattoo world. I mean, if it but was I mean, that, other... but but taking the negative space and turning it instead of just having it all be black, you'd have like you know like an outline of twelve needles or whatever, a bit of a heavy outline, and the inside all filled in with, uh, with weird colors shape, yeah. or graffiti. And you also did, I think, like on the Luke. The first graffiti piece I'd seen. Yeah. That was on his inner arm. That was inspired actually by, because Baba was not tattooing at the time. He was a graffiti right. writer. And, 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 and he a, came around and painting started hanging around. Jackets. Spray yeah. painter. And so you know, painter. he got Airbrush me interested shot. in that kind of thing. So we kind of cross-pollinated with each other. Yeah, right. he came along when uh, you did that piece on his arm. Actually, I think he put a JS on it too. Yeah. And that's when he came to uh, Psychedelic Solution. That's when I first met him. He was a skinny-looking California yeah, kid with yeah. like the, the hair. Yeah, now he's like a big, fat, gnarly-looking yeah, yeah, yeah. tattoo guy, you know. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Baba, yeah. We did a great show with him about a year ago. Yeah, oh, Baba did do a great well, show. Well, he could talk. Yeah, he could talk. That kid could talk. I'm, I'm a little shyer than... And some days. of your uh, inner... Actually, it's very much like what the graffiti is now. I'm you letting know, you do all the talking tonight. Yeah, so you get the graffiti with all the little, you know, the circles and all that inside of it, the color. Yeah. Yeah, you were doing that inside Tribal too, which was also very unique. Yeah. And then you did okay. the uh, Luke, uh, the big tattoo, what was the cartoonist's name, uh, Mary Fletcher? Yeah, yeah, I did a big back piece on Luke that was inspired by that. And then I, when I quit tattooing, I started painting that stuff, you know. I, I never got around to coming back to tattooing tattooing those pieces on people, but you know, I kind of just fell out of the tattoo thing about 20 years ago. I kind of fell out of tattooing and I wanted to write these books, you know, so I just had to, you know, I, I, I just had to just quit tattooing. I just had to completely stop tattooing and I moved back to South America and I started writing books. And that became like a full-time gig, you know, I never made another dime. Because, you know, I made a lot of money tattooing, and I never made any money writing books. But, you know, I got to do what I love. And, uh, you know, so it's been that way. Now I dip into tattooing every time, you know, the bank account, you know, starts to zero out. I'll just do a few tattoos to, you know. So you still tattoo a little bit? A little bit, very little bit, just enough to keep going. So you tattoo in California? Bobby very Trump? little, very little. Only when somebody calls that, you know, wants a tattoo and, you know, they, they want to pay what I charge. and. You know, so it's 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 very little because you know I'm not out there promoting myself as a tattoo artist. If I wanted to, I could, but I don't want to. You know, and what about I love tattooing, but I don't want to tattoo full time anymore. You know, it's it's uh, it's you know I'd rather just live my life. I did enough tattoos. No, that's cool. You know? I mean, I enjoyed tattooing this guy yesterday. That was a blast. You know, he wanted something cool that I could really <coughs> sink my teeth into and. Do a nice through my name nice in thing. there. Yeah, you know, <laughs> and then your name came up. Yeah. So, nope. Yeah. But so. But so anyway, uh, and what about all your flash and all? Because you you have an amazing tattoo collection and art collection. I still do. Do you? Yeah, I survived by selling those things on eBay. Because you had like a bunch from India. And writing books. I mean, the tattoo flash books that I'm putting out. You know, those sell. I mean, my literature books don't sell. Nobody reads anymore. So the flashbook, is that Schiffer? No, that's uh, Powerhouse. I have both of those. 
Yeah, but I know a lot of people who have those ones. Yeah, those books are you know pretty much staples for every tattoo shop. You know, yeah. so. I mean that always keeps coming up on top of the uh, of the flash books. What's your, that? Your book. Which book? The the flash book. Yeah, the flash book. What about it? It always keeps popping up. Popping up. Oh, in other words. There's hundreds of books on Amazon in these places, and some yeah. always keep popping up on the front. Oh, really? And yours always pops up. Well, it's a up. very popular book. It pops up on my it's Facebook very, page sometimes. Really? The yeah, Tattoo Flash books. Well, that's yeah, a very yeah. popular book. And yeah, the I mean, reason it's popular is because it's really... I mean, it must be selling a lot to keep on showing it up. It sells plenty, you know. It's the only there's hundreds book of books. Sells. There's hundreds. Yeah. Yeah, there is hundreds. Yeah, so, I mean, literally hundreds. Well, it's priced to sell. And it's a great, I mean, you know, you can get it on Amazon for like 35 bucks, and it's like a $200 <coughs> book. People are selling books similar to that at tattoo conventions for yeah. $200-$300. This book sells for 30 bucks on Amazon, man. You can't beat that fucking price. Is it, um, I just wanted to ask, like, when that process of collecting all of that vintage flash started? Was that started that? back when I started, when I first started making money tattooing was probably back in the early 80s. And there was still all these old scab vendors out there that had this stuff. And, you know, I was blessed with an eye for the, for the future. John's always that, been a collector. I could see that this stuff was going to be precious archives someday. And these guys just had this stuff laying around. They would pull it down off the wall because an old design from like World War One wasn't selling anymore, especially when the... You know, all the young rock and roll people started getting into tattooing and they'd see like flaming guitars and, you know, new modern stuff. And so nobody wanted some old, yeah. you know, some old battleship from World War One anymore as a tattoo. So these old guys had all this classic old tattoo stuff on the wall. They started pulling it down off the wall to replace it with, you know, Huck's Balding Flash. So they'd take this stuff down and they'd throw it in a box in the back room and it would sit there collecting like dust. And I knew about this, and I had money at the time. You know, I was making money tattooing, so I'd go visit these old scab vendors. I wish I'd done more of that now. But I'd go and visit these old scab vendors, especially when I had the magazine. I'd go and interview them, you know, and I'd be like, hey, you got any of that old flash laying around there? Ah, oh, yeah, we got a, you know, boxes of it in the back room. Uh, take it, you know, and they'd give it to me. And I'd take all this shit home and just collect it, collect it, collect it. And I, I should have gone out there if I, if I could go back in a fucking time machine. I'd go back and I'd go to every one of those old guys and just, you know, get by, you know, or be gifted all their old tattoo junk that they didn't want anymore. And, you know, I'd have a hell of a collection. I already do have a hell of a collection just from, you know, the stuff that I acquired back yeah. then. I just kept, just kept sitting on this stuff because I knew that someday this stuff would be real valuable. I had no idea how big, I knew tattooing was going to get big. You know, I could see the future coming. I didn't know how big it was going to get. That it was going to become like this, you know, huge worldwide, you know, like uh, fashion culture. But I, I knew it was going to get big, and I knew that I, I loved this stuff too. So I just wanted to have it. So I just collected all this stuff over the years, and I wound up with, you know, a pretty sizable collection of, you know, antique vintage tattoos. And in, in terms of uh, the first people to introduce you to that was like Bob Shaw one of those guys it was like yeah I got stuff from Bob Shaw I got stuff from dozens of old tattoo guys and in terms of the mag that's like another thing that seemed at least from what I know to be pretty ahead of the curve or seeing like into the future in terms of like where the trends in tattooing was going was the, was the magazine well the magazine was interesting because 
you know, I knew that tattooing was growing and was going to become a big deal, but at the same time, I had a hand in making it be a big deal. Yeah. Through the magazine, you know, through... No, absolutely, yeah, yeah. You know, so I kind of was like building, you know, building something at the same time that I had a vision of something that was coming. I jumped on the train and started waving the fucking banner, and, you know, and I, I was instrumental in a lot of ways in, in making that happen, you know, through the magazine. I was promoting the art you know, by interviewing, giving interviews with all these old, you know, tattoo guys, like preserving their stories for posterity, you know, and uh, yeah, so, you know, that stuff became, you had, know, I, 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 yeah. Had prior to that there been um, basically a way to put a face to a name to tattooers that, like, before, because it sounds like there was so much, like, um, it was all Mystery, folklore. Yeah. It was all word of mouth. It was kind of like folklore. It was like you had to know somebody who. I mean, there were different them. periods that came along. I mean, part of it was you know you had some magazines that were early, like uh, Grandpa Groovy from Richmond. He put a thing out. He had National Tattoo did their yearly thing. Yeah, they were all assholes. I love they were all, coming they were along. All, they were all assholes. They and, had no and taste. They had, moved they had up no the vision. Ladder. They had no nothing. They were just, no, they, Casey, they missed the boat. They didn't know what Casey the Casey from Outlaw Biker, he doesn't know how many tattoo magazines he's done or what he's done. He had no interest. He was interested in porno, making money, and that was it. And that was the tattoo world. Yeah. And so uh, I t the uh, international tattoo, which Jonathan did, was part of that. That, that did a lot to change the... Uh, well, it did a lot to change and, and, things and the, uh, the, pre somebody, the prestige. There was somebody there that actually gave a fuck and that knew, to a high end. you know, that, that, that knew, that had a vision of like the whole thing well, across the board and then I could go and sort of put all the jigsaw puzzle pieces together through that venue. So I, you know, I had an opportunity, you know, it was a big question being at the right place at the right time and having yeah. the knowledge and the good taste and the good sense to sort of start pulling things together yeah. in a way that made sense, you know. John was always a historian and a collector, and he always collected high-end stuff, whether it be silver or jewelry or rings or whatever. He's always been a high-end collector. So those things went together. And also that time period, you know, this was the time when you started seeing uh, tattoos on Paris uh, runways. This right. is the time when Venus starts doing piercing with really high-end uh, Precious metals and precious. Uh, there was stones. a lot that I a lot did through the magazine. On. A lot of that I promoted yeah. all that through the magazine. Like if I heard of somebody, you know, I was on fucking David Letterman came to me and put me on the Letterman yeah. show. I was a yeah. tattoo artist, you know. Yeah. There was uh, stuff like that was going on, but every day stuff. You know, this is New York, man. In New York, shit comes to you yeah. magically. You know, if you're like doing well, that stuff, was, like that New was York, a magic shit period happens, in terms you know? of tattooing. This yeah, is absolutely. a place where shit happens. You know, yeah. I could have sat in L.A., you know, dreaming about this shit for the rest of my life, you know, and nothing would have happened. When I came to New York, this is a kinetic place. You know, you start to do something and, and you know, things Almost just every gravitate time you came towards here. you. That's why, you know, people can get successful here overnight because, yeah. because it's, it's New York. It's the nature of this place. It's, there's something magical about New York that... Shit Hopefully there still is. Hopefully there still is. Well, there is. I yeah. mean, there always has been. New York is a place where things, you know, grow and flourish, whether they're good yeah. things or bad things, no, whatever, they are, whatever they are. The soil is very fertile here. This is a vortex where yeah, shit true. just explodes, and it could be good shit or it could be a shit show. So what are you doing now? 
What am I doing now? Right now, I'm taking a little hiatus from writing, and I'm uh, traveling around the world and sort of doing sort of a sort of a contemplation of uh, my entire life. And uh, you know, I'm 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 uh, I'm getting ready to go back and to round two of the writing. I'm getting ready to you know to uh, go back to full-time writing. Okay. But right now, I'm just kind of taking it. So a, would you go visit Hanky in Amsterdam? No, no, I'm not going to Amsterdam. What am I going to go? I don't know. I'm just Amsterdam. I'm kind of retracing my steps. New York, oh, okay. Mexico, Mexico, Brazil, Los Angeles, Miami. And, you know, I'm, I'm working with, uh, you know, I'm working with uh, uh, some spiritual practices that uh, bring me in contact with... Uh, a whole other community of interesting people, and uh, you know, I'm just exploring, exploring other dimensions, uh, and you know, that gives me a wider perspective of uh, the work I got to do in this dimension. Uh, so, you know, I'm getting, I'm getting ready to uh, get back to full-time writing. Right now, I've, I've taken about a year off of writing, and I'm about to uh, get back into it when, whenever you know. Uh, Scavenger three. Scavenger three is already started. I just need to block out mental, physical, spiritual, emotional time and space to go back in there and finish three, four, five as long you know as however many books you know I have uh, time to keep writing. You know I have no uh, ambition anymore. You know as far as like. You know, being famous or making money or anything like that. I just want to, you know, complete my mission here before it's time to move on. And so I got these books to write. You know, and, uh, you know, you have a lot of passion. There's a lot of passion in the writing. Yeah. There's a lot because that's, you know, that's. Yeah, you gotta to have the flow going. You gotta have the passion. Yeah. Well, I definitely got that. You know. Now I just gotta find the time, and the space, and the money, because it, you know, it costs money to take a year off making money and just dedicate yourself to yeah. to living in that creative zone, you know, and, uh, you know, tattooing, you can make money, I, but if I went back to tattooing, I wouldn't have the time or space to do the real work, and the real work for me is writing these books, which don't make any money, so I gotta, you know, find a balance where I can hustle a little here, make enough money to go way over there, and then, you know, sit and write, so that's... Uh, yeah, I need to get back into that zone. You know, that's where that's 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 really my goal is to get back to a quiet place where I can just interrupt. But um, you mentioned that there's, however, you know, several more books to come. There is. In, in the first book, you you write a lot about, you know, having to kind of find find the memories within yourself. Yeah. Um, and I was wondering, have that. Is that process like an ongoing thing, or have you like got got to a point and you're like, okay, I have these five, six, seven books. The, this is what's going to be in this. Not maybe not down to the. I have days. a rough outline. Okay. I think what you're saying, you know, I've got a rough outline, and I always did, and that's basically the the movie script, you know, that I wrote for Johnny Depp back in 2000. I wrote this, uh, you know, screenplay that he never, you know, wound up making it into a movie, and then DiCaprio got involved, and he bought the rights to it, and that gave me enough money to disappear to South America for 10 years to write, you know, to actually start writing books off this thing, because DiCaprio never made the movie either. Uh, so what happened is, but in writing that screenplay, it gave me a foundation 
It gave me a, a, basically a timeline and a foundation for these books that I want to write. And then I started writing and I wrote the first two books and that takes me about a third of the way through the screenplay. Now I got three more books or four more books to get me to the end of the screenplay plus all this new shit that's coming in all the time because yeah. life is not stable. It's, it's not, you know, it, it's, it, so even as I'm writing these books, I'm following a sort of a movie script but all kinds of information is coming in outside what's on the actual, you know, pattern, the stencil for the, for the, for the storyline. All kinds of shit's coming in all the time, and I just welcome it, you know, and then I just go off in all these weird directions. That's why the, the book is kind of like flashbacks, and fast forward, and then you back 20 years or 40 years, and then you go to here, and you go to there, and there's all these weird abstract contemplations thrown in, and you just try to... Put it together. It's like doing this gigantic jigsaw puzzle, and you don't even know what half of the pieces aren't even in the box. Right. So you're just waiting for the universe to throw in more pieces, and then it becomes another. You think you're painting a giraffe, and it turns out to be a fucking hummingbird or something. You know. So it's it's a very strange, you know, magical creative process that you know that it's who the fuck knows what it's going to come out being. You know, it's. Uh, yeah, it's kind of, you know, like Joe Coleman, my brother Joe Coleman, you know, he's this amazing painter and, you know, he paints, he starts these paintings and he does not have an outline for the painting at all. Like he has a basic idea of what he's going to paint, but the painting evolves as he's making it. And it's kind of that way with these books, even though I do have the script, it just gives me a basic timeline of my life and I do know my story because I've lived it, you know, up to a point I know my story. You know, what I can say, this happened, this happened, this, I went here, I went there, I did this, I did that. But I don't know how that story wants to be told. Just like Joe doesn't know how his painting wants to manifest in the long run. He goes in there with an open mind and an open heart and a paintbrush and vision and talent and he just lets the thing tell him where to move the brush next. And it becomes this incredible, you know, crazy quilt tapestry of amazing colors and visions and you know, uh, inspirations, and you know, me and Joe, we've had long conversations because we kind of are like very similar souls in our creative process, you know, I mean, me and Joe have had long conversations about this, and it's like, you know, I like to think I write the way he paints, and you know, he's a big fan of my work and a big supporter of my literary work, and I'm a big supporter and fan of his painting work, and we, we, we seem to have the same destiny as that goes, and I feel kind of ashamed that I've taken a year off from, from writing, because I think Joe, if he took a year off from painting, he'd probably you know, kill himself or somebody else. And I, then I look at myself and I'm like, what am I doing? Man? You know, I'm I haven't killed anybody. I haven't <laughs> killed anybody. No, I'm doing good things, good things. But I, I really do need to get into a... Uh, you know, into a, into, a, into a zone where I'm just writing all the time because that's really... So you're getting back to that place now? I'm working towards getting back to that place. I mean, I'm traveling that's pretty much South America? It might be. Yeah. It might be. I don't know. New York could I mean, be hard to do it, right? I don't know. I mean, at some point, it shouldn't matter. I mean, I'm the kind of writer that it should not matter where I am. Set and setting should not matter to me. I should be able to sit right on a fucking bus stop in fucking, you know, 
Bushwick or something and just write a book because that's how I've written in the past. I just I used know. to find him on the corner in Rio de Janeiro sitting on his motorcycle. You know, he wrote his first book on, on the Blackberry. Yeah, you, I wrote my first book sitting really? on the Blackberry in Rio de Janeiro on a motorcycle. Yeah, most of it. Uh -huh. Yeah, just taking notes all day long, just writing, 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 compulsively. You know, just like vomiting words into this Blackberry mm -hmm. and then emailing to myself and then eventually I had all these things and I started putting them together into a book. Really? Yeah. Wow. So, you know, I should not have any excuse that, you know, I don't, because I've been making excuses for myself like, oh, you know, I need to make enough money so I can just, you know, go sit on a beach somewhere. I don't need to sit on a fucking beach. I'm a fucking writer. I should be able to write anywhere, anytime and just do it. So, I don't know. For some reason, I'm, I'm experiencing something I never thought I would experience, you know, writer's block. I don't know what that is. And I think what it is is that basically, you know, there's so many fucking stories and there's so much inspiration and there's so much poetry raging around in my sphere that I don't even know where to, you know, I'm scared, you know. It's like, holy shit, you know. It's like I'm looking at this giant mountain, you know, and I'm like, where do I even start? So I'm going to really need to just uh, start anywhere because, because there's so much. I mean, I need to just reduce it down to just, you know, what I have to do in one day, you know. Just uh, one more question. I guess not so much about the book, but in the book, in the first book, I remember um, there was a moment, I think maybe when you left home, when you were writing a comic book, uh. and then your mother and stepfather came in <laughs> and caught you smoking weed and then, like, ripped up the comic book. Yeah. So it's kind of a two-part question. One, um... Were you always drawing? Because that, to me, that kind of felt like an intersection between tattooing and writing. Yeah. Um, that, you know, that, those comic books. But one, were you always drawing as a kid? Was that something you just, like, had? And then once you started tattooing, it just kind of came naturally? Um, and then two, when did storytelling become, like, extremely important? To yeah, you? these are good questions. You know, I mean, when I was a kid, I drew because my dream was to be a comic book artist because I read a lot, you know, I compulsively read comic books and I was like, I love the, you know, the proficiency of these artists and the way they could tell their stories in this particular format with, you know, like the comic book format. I thought that was brilliant, you know, and I read storybooks, you know, and stuff as a kid, Tom Sawyer, all that. But comic books, I thought this is the fucking, this is the venue by which, you know, stories should be told. So I was, you know, from very early age, I was fascinated with comic books. And I wanted to be a comic book artist and create my stories through that venue. But, uh, you know, I got lazy as a kid. I found drugs and, you know, I just kind of drifted off into this drug maze, you know. And so I didn't do that. But what I always did was I always journaled. I always wrote, like, stories in a journal. I always wrote just stuff. I wrote mm -hmm. short stories. I wrote poetry. I wrote rants, I journaled, and I wrote all this stuff, and I had all this stuff, but nothing ever was finished, you know, my dream you saved was those to, journals. I saved those fucking journals, and a lot of that stuff got dumped into scab vendor, 40, 50 years later, I resurrected these junky, right, teenage, right, right. horrible, ridiculous stream of consciousness journals, and I went through them, and I was like, holy shit, there's good stuff here, you know, and I resurrected that stuff, and sort of, you know, brought it back to life, and stuff bits and pieces of it into, into the, the books. I was finally 
finally able to write because I, you know, I eventually I got sober and I went on this sort of inner journey and I started, uh, you know, exploring uh, my life in a way, you know, that I never had the courage to do before. And then I went back to those journals and started really reviewing stuff and I was like, wow, you know, this is all grist for the mill. This could all be used to good purpose in this, you know, context. So it was almost like I was going back on this rescue mission to sort of rescue this, you know, this teenage kid who kind of failed at everything, you know, and, you know, sort of put my arm around his shoulder and say, come on, kid, we're going to, we're going to, you know, we're going to do something now, you know, straighten this out. Yeah, you know, so, so yeah, that was a, that was a, that was a real blessing to be able to do that, you know, but uh, yeah. So, so writing's always been a passion in your life. Always, and I always read a lot, and I always thought, man, if someday I could write something of, you know, value, that would be, that would be the tits, you know. Like I used to read Celine and Kerouac and Henry Miller and, you know, all these great writers and, you know, think like, God, you know, I wish I could do that, you know. I wish turns I could. out you can. Well, it turns out I can, you know, yeah. and that was, uh, yeah, I mean, and then I wrote these books, you know, and I'm, I'm very proud of that. That's probably the proudest accomplishment of my fucking life. Really? It was, oh, yeah, absolutely, beyond anything else. Because the books are about my life, you know, yeah. about different aspects of my life. You know, the good, the bad, and the ugly, but, you know, unflinching, you know, honesty, you know, was something that could be converted into something of value. And, you know, I've lived a pretty ugly life in a lot of ways, you know. I mean, a lot of drugs, a lot of betrayals, a lot of, you know, self-betrayals, a lot of self-destruction, a lot of, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, horror stories and fears and nightmares and, you know, bad behavior and you, you name it, you know. And I've, I've lived a pretty ugly life in a lot of, in a lot of ways. And so to be able to take all that ugliness and confusion and fear and weirdness and turn it into something, you know, kind of beautiful and valuable is like probably the greatest accomplishment, you know, that a human being can, can create that kind of alchemy to take something, you know, that's just like demented and decrepit and, you know, demoralized and, and, and take all those ingredients. That's what Joe Coleman does, you know. He takes all these, these horrible, you know, demonic fucking curses and turns them into art, you know, beautiful art, like a sensational, incredible, you know, transcendent art, you know. So, I mean, that's, you know, that's what we can do as artists, you know. We can resurrect, you know, something, something valuable out of, you know, the hellish experience of, you know, of uh, living in this kind of hellish world, you know. And I think art is transformative in that sense, you know. I think real art its purpose is to, you know, is to bring us to a next level, you know, of uh, evolution, you know, on some level. So, you know, so for sure that's the proudest accomplishment I've ever achieved and that's why, you know, I feel bad right now in the middle of this one year hiatus that I'm not actually doing that fucking all day, every day, because it well, is. I'm sure there's a reason for it. There's some know. spiritual weird reason. I yeah, remember, you, you know, sometimes gross, you yeah. just... You, sometimes you, you just, need darkness. Sometimes you need to just kind of let yeah. things cook, you know, yeah, and, and yeah. things are germinating on some weird, you know, on some other dimension somewhere, yeah, things are lining up. up and, you know, I mean, I've come to the point where I actually have come to believe that, you know, like... Everything has a purpose? Well, and that life doesn't stop when, you know, when you croak. You know, I, I've come to actually believe that, you know, I might do some of my greatest work, you know, after I've left this fucking body. 
you know, I mean, that's not an excuse to be lazy while I'm in this body. But, you know, if I don't finish this stuff in this life, I'll get to continue. Just make it quiet like that. <laughs> so, yeah. Is okay, that the, is that the finish bell? I think that's the finish bell. So we always end on a happy note. <laughs> so we sing yeah. that. Happy trails. We go out singing happy trails. Happy trails to you until we meet again. Happy trails to you until we meet again. Okay, this is From this time until next time, fans, thank you very much for riding off on those happy trails. We had Jonathan Shaw, Nancy Bishop. Preston Priest, Clayton Patterson, Great Ball Radio. So thank you very much, John Shaw. And uh, when are you leaving town? Uh, come Sunday, I'm off to Miami for, uh, for a couple of weeks and then uh, back to Brazil. Okay, so this is Adios Amigos. See you next Thursday. Until next summer, guys. All right, that's it. Okay, well, thank you. Thank you, guys. Okay.